Well, let me read you something tonight. In Luke chapter 15, verse number 7, the Bible says this, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. More than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. See, that's sometimes what we error on is we want people to look good and look right. But there's no true repentance and there's no true salvation. The Bible goes on to say, uh, either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors t- together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have lo- found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And I'm so thankful this morning that we were able to see three in just the adult service. I can't imagine what heaven would have looked like after the conclusion of our service. Sometimes we think it's a very mundane thing for somebody to come to know Christ. But the Bible says it's one of the only things that gets a rise in heaven is when sinners come to salvation. I'm thankful that I'm part of a church who got to see that this morning. I'll tell you one thing. I want to see it every week, but the weeks I don't see it, I go home upset. So on the weeks that I do see it, I'm going to go home happy. Like, like I got ants in my pants or something. That's just make me happy. I, I don't know why that would make me happy, but just saying. Anyway, tonight we're not in Luke by any means. We're not in Luke chapter 15. We are in Acts chapter 17 tonight. And I just wanted to share that with you. I thought of that this morning, how fortunate and blessed we were to see those people get saved. I've been in churches that have not seen a person walk the aisle like that in years. And so us seeing that this morning was a great thing, and I'm thankful for it. I have a a couple of announcements, really, uh, that are very important. Uh, First of all, tonight, we really need help with our Christmas store. Uh, We're a little bit behind as far as the, the presents we have. And it is by far, I would say, without reservation, the most effective outreach that we have through the bus ministry all year long. These kids will bring their parents. I heard Brother Brian talking to a member just before service. These kids will come and look for presents to give their parents. They'll come looking for presents for themselves, but a lot of times they'll come looking for presents for the parents. A lot of times they'll bring their parents just so they can see all the presents. And I remember when I was in the bus ministry, uh, this was by far our biggest outreach of the year. And I know that's the vision that Brother Brian and Brother Jim have for it this year. But we need help with some toys. It doesn't matter what age group of toy you get. If you want to stay around the 25 to 30-year-old young man category, that would be good for me. Benelli shotgun would be nice. I've got one of those. It doesn't shoot, so I probably need a second one. Um, But uh, ages around 3 to about, what, uh, 17, Brother Brian, somewhere in there. 3 to 16, that'll work. Anywhere in there will be fine because our teenagers uh, that ride the buses take part in that as well. We need help. And you say, I don't have time to go face the shopping crowds. I don't want no part of that. Well, you can just write us a check, and we will spend your money for you. And so you are welcome to do that. But we do need some help with that, so I'd encourage you. Uh, That is a huge outreach for our bus ministry. Please have a part in that. And then secondly tonight, I've announced this to the teenagers. We have a a workout club meeting every 
the first Monday of every month, and generally it's the first Monday of every month, and tomorrow night is our biggest night of the year. We are cooking steaks, steaks and potatoes. And you say, ask yourself, did you ever have a youth director that would cook you steaks and potatoes at, a, at, at an outing, at a youth event? I, I'm just saying it was Brother Luke's idea, so give him all the credit for that. But uh, we uh, are cooking steak and potatoes for all the kids who've attended six weeks in a row. And all those kids I need to meet with after service who plan on being there tomorrow night, whether they've been there six weeks or this is their first time, I need to meet with them right after service tonight, okay? Will you all help me with that? Parents, make your kids go over there and meet with me right in that section right there. All right, Acts chapter 17. Thank you for being here tonight. We're going to continue our series about the journey of Paul. Many journeys of Paul, really, but the journey that I'm speaking of is the one of how he went from being a persecutor to a preacher. Somebody who was uh, uh, always against the church to someone who was the heartbeat of the church for a while. So Acts chapter 17 tonight, we'll start reading in verse 16. The Bible says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Others some, He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears, we would know therefore what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll begin this evening. Father... I pray that you'd please bless the sermon. I pray that you'd open the hearts of every individual in this room. And I pray that what is done tonight would be to accomplish uh, what you would have it to do. Lord, I pray that people would draw closer to you. I pray that people would decide to obey you. And Lord, I pray that this message would encourage many. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, there's a lot going on in our text so far. And the way we've covered it, I've not actually covered everything that we've uh, uh, looked at in this chapter. And also, I won't cover probably the most pivotal portion of Scripture in this passage, which is Paul's sermon at Mars Hill, because we just covered that about six months ago in another series. But I will give you somewhat of our context tonight. Verse number 1 and verse number 2, we find Paul going to Thessalonica. The Bible says in verse number 2 that he was there three Sabbath days. In other words, three weeks Paul stayed in Thessalonica and preached and taught people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. After that, they ran him out of town. The Jews who did not believe ran him out of town. But the Bible does say that there was a great multitude of people who believed as a result of Paul's stay there in Thessalonica. The Bible teaches us that right after Paul leaves Thessalonica, he goes to a town called Berea, which is actually not that far as far as a map goes. It's quite close to Thessalonica 
as far as geography goes. And so that's where Paul went. He went from Thessalonica to Berea. And the Bible tells us, and this is a verse that every Christian ought to know, the Bible tells us that the people in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they searched the Scriptures daily and whether those things were so. And I find that very uh, uh, impactful to me in my life, just the fact that someone could be under the teaching of Paul. I'm sure he was dynamic. Man, I think he would have been a guy that could keep your attention. I think Paul was the type of guy who threw the joke and the punchline in just at the right time, you know. I think Paul had the best sermon illustrations. He, he had the best testimony. He just, he, just, he just was a tremendous speaker and orator. But regardless of his oratory ability, the Bible tells us that these people were not so influenced by his tongue that they did not check out what he was saying by the word of God. Now, as convincing as Paul may have been, as good a speaker as Paul was, the Bible says these people were noble because they searched the Bible to make sure what Paul was teaching was what God was teaching. And I find that very encouraging for me. And it it tells me that what I'm supposed to do is I hear the man of God preach. I'm to make sure it lines up with the Word of God. And if it lines up with the Word of God, I have no choice but to accept it doesn't matter what part of the anatomy my dad preaches towards. You ever heard him say that? He always says, uh, Preacher, I got tired of you preaching to my face. He said, Well, if you'll expose another part of your anatomy, I'd gladly preach to that. doesn't matter what part of your anatomy he preaches at. If it lines up with God's Word, it is our uh, obligation to accept it as truth and as God's Word. And that's where we find ourselves this week. Now, I want to talk to you briefly tonight about how to have an eye for the needy. How to have an eye for the needy. It was maybe about four or five years ago, I guess now, maybe just a little shorter than that. I remember a family came into church one morning, and I saw them, and I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but they struck me as a very attractive family. I mean, the dad was a good-looking guy, looked like he should be on the cover of some man-wilderness magazine with a fishing pole and a chainsaw. Uh, The the wife was a pretty lady, uh, and the daughter was just adorable, looked like a little pumpkin patch doll, but just bigger. And she talked and was cute and not creepy like some pumpkin patch dolls are. But I remember looking at this family, and I remember having this thought, If we could just pay them to take their picture, we would never need to buy another one offline again. Because the church spends quite a bit of money on pictures to put on tracks and on flyers and pamphlets. We try going as cost-effective as we could. But I remember looking at this family, and I said, you know, if we could just take their picture, that would look great on our track. Because they were, I'm talking about, a good-looking family. It was not just a few weeks later that this family joined the church. And it was very funny because the day that they joined, my family and I went to Outback and we were eating at Outback and the waiter or the hostess set us not probably 20 feet from this couple and this daughter in a booth. And I remember I said, Dad, there's that family that just joined. And we went over and we talked to them. We had a good time. We we laughed with them and And I remember us as a family having conversations like, you know what, that's the type of families that the church is built upon. 
young families, professional families, good families that, that just want to know more about Christ. We need to get them plugged in. We need to get them active. And I remember thinking, man, that's the type of family our church needs. That just shows you how foolish I am sometimes. Come to find out the entire reason that that family was looking for a church is because the husband and the wife were having some tremendous marital problems. And that's a sad thing. Uh, the end of the story was much more sad. I'll not go into great detail, but I will say that there were drugs involved and, and a stint in rehab, and, and ultimately the family did get a divorce. I'm not, sure, uh, I'm not sure which parent got the daughter. It's just a sad, sad, sad story. But doesn't that show you how foolish we are to judge books by their cover? I'm talking about if I had the trophy family, that was them. But on the inside, they were hurting. Behind closed doors, they were, they were at war with one another. No peace, no rest. And I just want to tell you tonight... Not all the time will the person who needs Christ most be covered in tattoos. Not all the time will they look like or smell like smoke. I, I believe we as Christians need to have a better eye for people who need Christ. So that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. I want to talk to you, first of all, about a productive delay See right here in Paul's ministry, what takes place is, Paul is going from town to town. As I illustrated earlier, he uh, first finds himself in Thessalonica. He preaches there for three weeks, and the Jews that don't believe in Christ run Paul out of town to Berea. Paul goes to Berea and begins to teach and preach about Christ, and people get saved, and, 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 and there seems to be a tremendous movement towards the things of God. And then the Jews that were in Thessalonica, who ran him out of Thessalonica move on over to Berea. So they literally go out of their jurisdiction, if you will, go to Berea and run Paul out of town at Berea. Now Silas and Timotheus, or Timothy, stay back in Berea, but Paul is ran out of town. He travels to Athens. Now Athens, as far as I can tell on the map, you know those little keys on maps? You know how hard those are to read, but I took it to Photoshop and I tried lining up my little... Uh, line that I made. As far as I can tell, from Berea to Athens was about 185 miles as the crow flies. That, and y'all don't understand that. We're a bunch of country rednecks from Texas, so y'all understand that terminology. As the crow flies, it's about 185 miles from Athens to Berea. Now that's the journey that Paul made. And Paul's here at Athens, and the, he tells Timothy and he tells Silas that they are to come as quickly as they can. I draw your attention to verse number 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Now, right here we see Paul is kind of at a standstill. He has a choice whether to kick his feet up and, and just kind of lay back and enjoy the beach there at Athens and the beautiful sights and all the buildings and the architecture. Paul had that choice. But the Bible says that while Paul waited, he was moved. He perceived their condition. Look, verse number 16 says, 
His spirit was stirred in him. Why was it stirred in him? Because he saw the whole city given to idolatry. The whole city was given to idolatry. And as Paul was on this somewhat uh, 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 time of Paul's, if you will, where Silas and Timothy were coming, I estimate it would be about two days by boat if they were sailing, a little bit longer if they were uh, traveling by uh, ground. And, And so I estimate two to three days, however you want, to travel that 185 mile journey. And Paul has the ability to just kind of kick back and wait. But while he's there, he sees things that affect him. He sees people worshiping gods that he knows is not the true God. He sees people doing things that may be devout, as the Bible tells us, that may be a tremendous, their commitment level. But at the end of the day, Paul knows they're in error. And the Bible says he was moved. Can I ask you something? When's the last time you were moved? And I'm not talking about by some celebratory Disney movie. Because I tell you, remember the Titans is quite moving. But I'm not talking about moved because some song struck you in a, in a way that kind of caught you off guard. I'm talking about when was the last time you were moved for someone's salvation? Here's the problem with us, is sometimes we get the wrong idea about who needs Jesus. But as I study the Bible, I see that the rich need Jesus. In uh, Mark chapter 10, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Master, uh, uh, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? See, even the rich man knows that he needs Christ. I see that the poor man knows Christ as the crippled man who's at the gate, which is called Beautiful, Acts chapter 3, he sits there and and he asks for money, but what uh, uh, James and John give him is far different than money. It is, uh, they say, we give you Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You see, the rich man needs money, but so does the poor man. In the Bible, it teaches us that the religious people need money. John chapter 3, a Pharisee, a Pharisee. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he sneaks to him at night so that nobody knows he's to come. And Nicodemus begins to question Jesus. And even there, Jesus says, Nicodemus, you know that you have to have me. You have to trust in me. So the rich man needs Jesus. The poor man needs Jesus. The religious man needs Jesus. The righteous need Jesus. The Bible tells us in uh, Luke chapter 2 that there was a man by the name of Simeon who had been promised that he would see Christ before he died. In fact, that was his whole heart's desire, that he would get to rest his eyes upon the Messiah. Simeon, even a righteous man, needed Jesus. The wicked need Jesus. A sinful woman comes to Jesus and anoints Christ's feet, and she was wicked. And those people sit around the table and say, Lord, if you knew what type of woman this was, you wouldn't let her sit at the same table with you. Even the wicked need Christ. The sick and diseased obviously need Christ. As leper after leper in Matthew chapter 8, Luke chapter 17, and Mark chapter 1, lepers are found at the foot of Christ asking for healing. But not only the sick and diseased, the healthy and the wealthy. You see, it was just a little man who one day found himself in the top of a tree 
trying to look around the crowd to see what this big fuss was about. And we know the man by the name of Zacchaeus. But did you know that the Bible calls him a rich man? The Bible tells us that even he, when in the presence of Christ, realized his need for Jesus. So if it's the rich, the poor, the sick, the healthy, the wealthy, the sinful, the wicked, everybody, why do we select people out to who we might think the gospel should go? I mean, does the person walking down the aisle in uh, nice clothes that were bought from the, you know, the nice stores, do they strike our eye like the poor man at the homeless shelter? Because they ought to. Christ came for all. The Bible tells us that uh, Christ is not uh, uh, slack concerning his promise, but his long-suffering to us is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, Jesus didn't come with this eye looking for the good or looking for the bad. He was looking for people who were lost. And I tell you, in this world, it is getting increasingly harder to find people that aren't. But we look around with almost blinders on. Jesus encourages disciples, Ye say ye have four months until harvest. I say unto you, look up. Lift up your eyes. The fields are wide already unto harvest. Even in Jesus' time, he says, just look around, guys. Open your eyes. Everyone needs me. We're almost selective. It's because we don't understand people's true condition. Secondly, because he uh, perceived their condition, it produced compassion. Look in verse 16. The Bible tells us the reason that he was so upset is because he saw the whole city was given to idolatry, but the Bible says his spirit was stirred in him. His spirit was stirred. You see, this was a time when Paul could have just relaxed, just kind of kicked back and enjoyed waiting on people. I mean, let's, let's all agree he had an excuse not to go soul winning. He had an excuse not to go witness. But as he sat there, I can't help but tell from the Word of God that these people's need and their, their condition began to chew on Paul. It began to eat him up that he had something that they needed and yet he was not giving it to them. So you know what Paul did? He started giving it to them. He made sure that wherever he was, he went out because he cared about these people. You see, Zacchaeus was chief among the publicans, and he was rich. Nicodemus, the Bible tells us, was a Pharisee and a ruler. Uh, Do you understand that Psalm chapter 126, verse 6, tells us that he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with us. So if you read that verse and you study that verse, there are two things that are necessary for you to bring your sheaves with you. Going and going with compassion. Sometimes I'm afraid that our evangelism is quite emotionless. What I mean by that is we go, but strictly out of obedience. Some aren't even going, but those that do, are you going because you are stirred? Are you going because it's hard for you to sleep at night knowing how far this world is getting from God? And I'm not saying that you lie awake at night worried about the, the, the shape this world is in. 
I'm saying, what are you doing to fix that problem? This world needs Christ. And if we would just have compassion because we understand people's condition. Thirdly, he purposed his contact. Now look in verse 17. The Bible tells us, Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews. Now we know from other passages, do we not, that this was his custom. That's what the Bible says, And Paul, as his manner was, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. We find that several times throughout Scripture. So in verse 17, it's literally no surprise to find Paul doing what he always does, at the synagogue, disputing with the Jews. But I don't want you to stop reading there. Let's continue reading that verse. And with with the devout persons, but here's something that you ought to note. And in the market daily with them that met with him. See, a lot of us are really concerned about the lost souls of men inside these doors. I mean, when we come to church, we would be the first one to bow our head in prayer, asking for God to do something in somebody's heart that we might see a salvation. But did you know that your compassion for sinners should be the same whether you're in the church or whether you're at HEB? I can just imagine Paul, as he is doing what he always does, going to the synagogue. They began to close the doors of the synagogue one day, and Paul is forced to go somewhere else with the message. Paul thinks, where's a large crowd of folks? Where could I go? Where could I go spread this message? And Paul says, I'll just go to the market. Everybody's got to eat. And I can just imagine Paul sitting in a corner of the market, if not standing in the square of the market, telling people about Jesus. I can see that. You know, great, uh, Paul's greatest ability was simply his availability. Paul wanted to be teaching and preaching Christ whenever he could. And while the doors of the synagogue may have been closed, Paul didn't stop there. He went where he could spread the message. Do we care more about sinners inside these doors than we do outside? Because it literally ought to be the same sinner. It is the same God. The only problem is our perception changes. I mean, it's like when we throw on the necktie, as much as we hate them, we throw on the necktie and we say, boy, oh boy, it's church time. I hope I get to see someone saved. And then we forget to tell people when the necktie is not on that, hey, the same God that saves on Sunday is the same one that can save on Monday. I just see that Paul began to purpose his contact when he was moved with compassion for these people. He said, if I'm going to go here, I'm going to tell people about Jesus. If I'm going to be here, I'm going to be spreading the gospel. I bet if you thought about it long and hard, you could come up with three places you find yourself quite often. You could probably say work. You probably have a hobby of some type. And you probably would even say home or something like that. But you could think of three places where you are at all the time. And I see women in the back saying, I don't have any hobbies. I'm a mother. (laughs) No, I, I bet if you thought about it long and hard, you could find three places where you find yourself. Let me ask you a question. When you're at those places that you are most accustomed to being, are you a good representation of Christ? And I mean more than having a good testimony. Are you a person who begins to share Christ with others? 
Oh yeah, lifestyle evangelism is necessary, but so is telling people. So Paul, as he went to the market, he said, I am moved with compassion and I will purpose the contact I have with people. Secondly, I want to point out to you a philosophical deliberation. Now, that's pretty long there. For a country boy that has a third grade education, the reason I say that is I stopped paying attention in the fourth grade. I went through 12 grades. But in the third grade, I didn't like any of my teachers from then on. And if any of you taught me, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. (laughs) I just thought of that. I've heard people say that, and I thought it was funny. Like, I've heard Dad say that. Oh, I thought my second grade teacher was pretty. And and then I realized I went to JCA, and like every member of this church has taught me at one point or another. (laughs) I loved all my teachers. Don't worry, I'll I'll ask forgiveness on that one later, I promise. But uh, uh, a philosophical deliberation. Verse 18, I want to point out to you the type of people that Paul found himself talking to. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? And others, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Now who's Paul's crowd? Who's the audience that he's speaking to? That's pretty educated folks. Philosophers. Guys that get paid to think. I get paid not to think. Dad's like, just stop talking, son. You'll get your paycheck on Monday. That's the way it works around here. I get paid not to think. These guys get paid to think. That's the type of people that Paul finds himself talking to. Uh, We don't really, we're not familiar with these terms at all, the Epicureans and the Stoics, but Epicureans were a sect, a group of people who followed a a man by the name of Epicurus. uh, Epicurus. And so... This is what this philosophy taught. It was a system of atheism and taught men to seek as their highest aim a pleasant and smooth life. Now, doesn't that sound quite familiar with stuff that we encounter today? I don't believe in God, but I believe we ought to uh, uh, be morally upright. I believe we ought to be good contributors to society. And I would say to that man, you would not know what good was unless there was a God. But these people were atheists, they didn't believe in God, but they said all of man's life is to live a good and smooth life. Well, obviously this pointed to materialism. Stoics, however, was founded by a man by the name of Zeno. He taught his disciples that a man's happiness consisted of bringing himself into harmony with the course of the universe. Now that sounds pretty familiar today too, does it? Uh, in fact, this actually kind of seeped over into Asia. Some of the nature, naturalistic things becoming one with your environment. And this is something that also led to materialism and pleasure. These were the type of people that Paul found himself talking to. So it was no surprise that Paul was met with some insults. Look in verse number 18. The Bible says, And some said... What will this babbler say? Not word babbler there means person who speaks empty. In other words, they were saying, you're talking, but it's just going in one ear and right out the other. You're saying words, but they're not meaning anything. You're just, you're an empty talker. You're a babbler. And so they began to insult Paul and talk to him in a derogatory manner. 
Why do we fear evangelism so much? Why is it that we are so guarded and unwilling to share somebody Christ? I would say it's for the fear of rejection. I remember when uh, uh, someone first told me about uh, uh, the possibility of dating my wife. It was a blind date, if you will. Um, I'm glad she wasn't blind. That was a blessing. But uh, I remember this guy, the Christmas banquet was coming up at West Coast, and I had a friend who uh, was talking to me, and he said, hey, there's this girl that I might be able to talk to, and maybe she could you know, go to the Christmas banquet with you because she didn't have anybody. And, and so I said, all right, that's fine. I'm not looking for any long-term relationships, so that, that'll be good. And uh, so he set the whole deal up. I mean, he went to her and is like, had this whole paper. It was in my handwriting, check, yes or no. No, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But uh, uh, I remember he, he went to her and said, hey, this guy, you know who he is. He's the redheaded kid with all the pimples, kind of has a high squeaky voice. It's not funny, but he thinks he is. That guy, and she, oh, yeah, I know that guy. Everybody hates that. Yeah, I know that guy. And so... Uh, he said, well, he would like to ask you to the Christmas banquet. If you want to go, he'll go. And uh, It's not a big deal. Just go as a blind date, kind of just to have someone. And so he set the whole thing up. And I remember he came back to me and said, yeah, she's, she's good for it. She just wants you to ask her. I was like, well, you kind of already did. Kind of seems like I'm just taking an extra step that is very unnecessary if she's already been asked. But, you know, getting to m- know my wife, that makes a lot more sense now. But I remember uh, they even, not only did this guy set up the date, he set up the pre-date in which I was to ask her. So uh, she was supposed to meet me here, and we were supposed to walk each other, or I was supposed to walk her to her dorm, and, you know, mistletoe, long story, but that's a joke. <laughs> Not allowed to do that at West Coast. But uh, so I remember the whole thing was set up, and I don't know why this took place, but so we leave the spot that we were supposed to meet each other at, we begin walking to the dorm, and Lancaster gets just unbearably cold. It's a high desert, and so in the day it'll be like 114 degrees, but at night it'll be like 14 degrees with wind blowing at 9,000 miles an hour, and there's no coat on this planet that would stop that wind from piercing through. And so I remember it was a cold night, so I was wearing this big jacket, and I had my hands in my pockets, and we got to this tree where I had planned to ask Amy to go to the Christmas banquet with me. I knew what she was going to say. Well, because look at me. No, I'm just kidding. Because it had all been set up beforehand. We get to this tree. I go, hey, I've got something I want to ask you. And, you know, she's a really good actor. She's like, oh, what could it be? (laughs) And at that moment, I felt my throat getting very tight. I remember thinking, why is it so cold out here? And I begin jogging in place. I wish I were making this up. I have my jacket on. I have my hands in my pockets. And I am literally doing this. 
And she is looking at me like, what kind of goofball is this? I proceeded to go on. I said, hey, I was just wondering if you'd like to go to the Christmas banquet with me. And she was like, okay. I was like, all right, we'll see you later. <laughs> I, I don't even think I walked her to her dorm because I was just like, why is it so cold? <laughs> now, I don't know why I was like that. I knew the answer. I knew that she needed me. I knew it was meant to be. I don't know why I behave like that. But honestly, I do. The fear of rejection. I mean, I knew the answer. And even at that, I was still nervous. Because we're so afraid of being rejected. And I'm afraid that that's the main reason people never have the courage to share the gospel. But here's the thing. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the Savior. And can I say this on the hills of saying that? It is their right to at least have that opportunity. Now, I hope with everything in my heart that that man chooses to trust Christ, that that woman chooses to, 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 to put her faith in Christ. I hope that that happens. But doesn't it seem fair that everybody ought to at least have the chance once? I'm just so afraid people aren't getting the chance because we're afraid they'll reject us. Christ is quite familiar with rejection. On the cross of Calvary, almost every single person at the foot of the cross was screaming and yelling at him, telling him things. Oh, you're the king of the Jews. Why don't you save yourself? Oh, it's not going to hurt Christ if they reject him. He's paid sin's final price for them. And I hope that we as Christians will have enough courage about us to realize we are the only avenue by which the message is going to get out. So I just believe that Paul was met with a lot of insults, but this is truly what happened as well. Look in verse 18. He was met with ignorance. Now, the Bible says that, uh, that there was a group of people who said, what will this babbler say? So they were insulting him. That was pretty rude. Others, some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. See, there was a group of people who were not quite clear on his message yet. And they were so bombarded with gods, little G-O-D-S, if you will. They were so bombarded with idol and temple and this and that. It was everywhere. So they had to make sure within themselves that this was a different God. And so as Paul preached, they said, Now, it seems to be a much different story than we've ever heard before. Would you continue to share it with us? And I just believe that a lot of people are rejecting Christ on the basis of they don't have a proper knowledge of who Christ is. This is what Paul says about people that he was very familiar with in Romans chapter 10 says in verse number one, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He goes on to say, For I bear them record. In other words, I attest for them. They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. 
He goes on to say, for they being ignorant, that's not a derogatory term. That's saying they just don't know. For they just not knowing of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Even Paul looked at Israel and he said, I, I stand as one to tell you that they truly want to know God. They just don't know how to worship him. They just don't know how he's revealed himself to us through his son Jesus. They just don't know. You know, I believe one of the most effective tools of the devil is to muddy the waters of religion. You want to know why there are so many denominations that this one believes just slightly different than this one, and this one believes just slightly different than this one, and this one's way off course, but they believe something different? You want to know why there are so many of them? So that when a person drives through town, they don't know whether to go to the Baptist church, the Pentecostal church, the non-denominational church, the Methodist church, the Catholic church. They don't know. And Satan has gotten good at muddying the waters. You know why it is our obligation and our calling to share the message of Christ? Because God knew that the waters were going to be muddy. Paul is preaching in Athens one of the most confused societies of all times when it comes to religion. God here and God here and God here. So Paul says, I want you to know that you may not understand what I'm saying and you may not truly know Jesus, but I preach him to you. It's our obligation to share the truth. Jesus says, I am the truth and the life and the resurrection. We are to set forth to people the true Jesus Christ. And a lot of people think that Christ is something that they see in, in a, hanging on a wall. They see him maybe in a picture or on a cross, and they don't even know the full story. What a shame it is for people living in America, freedom of speech and freedom of religion, and yet we're too cowardly to tell them the truth. We're too cowardly to let them know that the Jesus they see on the cross and that little figurine is not hanging on that cross any longer. We're too cowardly. I just believe Paul was met with some insults, but he was also met with some ignorance. And finally, I want you to notice in verse 19, he was met with some intrigue. Verse 19, the Bible says, And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine, uh, uh, whereof thou speakest, is? Now, Areopagus is a higher part there on Mars Hill. It is, if you will, a platform. It's just a, a formation of rocks, but it's where people could get up and speak. And there were people who were Areopagites who would sit around, and there were people who were very respected and, and, and very uh, uh, pristine, if you will. They were people who people looked up to. They were knew about religion. They were quite familiar with that. People looked up to them as far as uh, society goes. And so they held a position of high esteem. And so Paul is taken to this pulpit, if you will, this platform, looking at some of the leaders of religion there in Athens. And they say, we want to know more. Tell us about this this Jesus you speak of. You know what? I believe this. If we would have the courage to stand up for God, people would want to know what our God stands for. 
But they see so many people not taking a stand for Christ, they don't want anything to do with a God with followers as wishy-washy as us. I believe that if you live a life that people will look at and say, hey, I want that, they'll give you a pulpit. They'll give you a platform. You know why? Because when their home is falling apart and yours seems to work just wonderfully, they're going to come to you and say, what are you doing with your wife that I'm not? I beat her. What are you doing? They're going to see your life and they're going to see your children respect you because they respect Christ and they understand that Christ taught them to respect their parents. They're going to see a home work in harmony and theirs is going to be falling apart and they'll come to you and they'll say, I give you a pulpit. Now preach to me. That's what they did to Paul. They said, we want to know, so we're going to put you on the highest part of the city, and we want you to explain it to us. If we live the life that God wants us to live, oh, people will be intrigued by what we have. People will look at us and notice there's a difference. Paul walked into town. People knew there was a difference. Uh, All the disciples walked into town. People knew there was a difference. The other day, uh, Joshua Christian Academy played a public school in basketball. It's a very small school. Copperl is its name. Uh, it's down towards Whitney a little ways. And I remember before the game, they had a girls team playing. They had a, a public school girls team and a private school's girl team. And, and, and or, I'm sorry, two public schools. It was Copperl versus some other public school. And they were playing. And I remember as we began to uh, transition from after the game, we took all the clothes all the warm-up stuff and all the water bottles, they took all theirs, and we were bringing our ball bag and putting our water bottles there. I overheard the coach and the athletic director talking uh, from the other school, and they said, what's up with this school? And the one said to the other, I think it's like a, a private school, a Christian school. And I'm sitting there thinking, that's awesome. My kids haven't stood up on any pulpit. My guys are shooting layups. The cheerleaders are stretching. Why is it that they notice a difference? Because Christ. There's no, no difference between me and them, save the master that I serve. And so I, I, I want you to know that if you live the life that God wants you to live, people will be quite intrigued by who you are and what you have to say. And I believe they'll give you a platform at the right time. Finally, we're done. I want you to see a perfect discourse. Now, in verses 22 through 31, Paul preaches arguably his most famous sermon. It is, I mean, it's a barn burner. It's a good one. It's short but sweet. And see, me and Dad, we're not short or sweet. So that's probably the thing we're doing wrong, Dad. But uh, uh, Paul's is short, to the point. But man, I tell you what, it convicted those folks. He preaches a sermon, and we've talked about it, verses 22 through verse 31. But these are the three main themes of what he says. He talks about their ignorant worship. He tells them that all these gods that he sees in the the altar with the inscription that says, To the unknown God, he says, I do suppose that you're too superstitious in all things. And he says, To these gods whom ye ignorantly worship. And he points to their ignorant worship. He says that they have an incessant searching. He tells them that the reason they have so many gods is because God has put into their heart 
that they needed to look for God. He even says, oh, and he is not far off if they will feel after him. And then thirdly, he tells them about their incentive to change. He assures them that one day they would face judgment with the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I'm not trying to degrade Paul's sermon at all, because it's probably as good as they get. But it's not perfect. You say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? As I read through this sermon here, he never mentions Jesus. Now, he says that there was a man that God would judge the world through, and he's referencing Jesus, but he never says that name. He never says the cross. He asked me where I'm going with this, and I'm trying to tell you this. There is an idea that there is a perfect gospel presentation. The other day, my wife got to lead a young girl to the Lord, and she came home and she said, I tell you, honey, I just felt like that was the worst presentation of the gospel that's ever been given. Can I say this to you? There's never been a perfect gospel given, except the one that was given by Christ. We feel so often that because of our shortcomings, maybe as far as uh, the verses we've memorized and the, the amount of stuff that we know, we feel disqualified or unqualified to share the gospel. Paul doesn't even mention Jesus' name in one of his most famous sermons of all time. I'm not trying to harp on Paul. It's an amazing message. I'm trying to encourage you, Christian, don't let your insecurities keep you from sharing Christ. You teach them of the death. You teach them of the burial. You teach them of the resurrection of Christ. You teach them that they're a sinner and that they need to be saved. It doesn't matter what you say. You've shared the gospel with them. Jesus says, or God says, that His Word would never return void, and it would always accomplish that what He set it forth to do. I want you to look down towards the end of the passage there. The Bible teaches us that there's a group of people who hear Paul. Now, this is not in what we've read. This is actually further down. Verse 32, there's a group of people here who do react to the gospel. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Now, we've already seen that, haven't we? We saw the group of people say, what is this babbler saying? He speaks empty words. And others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. Now, does Paul just start back up preaching? What does he do? The Bible tells us, so Paul departed from among them. The most admirable thing that Paul does here and the thing that we can learn the most from is not only did he teach the gospel, but he trusted the gospel. You say, what do you mean? I mean Paul understood it wasn't his ability to tell people about the gospel. It was the gospel's ability to save. Do you know that the Bible teaches us, for without faith it is impossible to please God? I wonder how much faithless gospel sharing we do. Paul said, I've shared the gospel with you. You don't need to hear it again. You heard me the first time. And I will let the word of God work on you. I'll let the seed grow in your heart till it overtakes you and chokes out all the doubts and chokes out all the fears until finally God's word accomplishes what he set it forth to do. 
1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul tells us he very much understands what he's saying here. The Bible says in verse 6, I have planted, but uh, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planted anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his labor. For we are laborers together with God. So often we take God out of the gospel. See, what we do is we think it's how good we can share the message. And I'll be honest with you, I'm guilty of this. We think that we can't share it good enough. Or we say, oh, well, I didn't go over repentance, or I didn't go over uh, uh, your, your, your uh, Adamic line nature. I didn't go over those types of things. I didn't go over the resurrection of the dead, and I didn't point you to the fact that uh, it's Adam's sin and not your sin, but it is your sin, but it's not only Adam's sin. I didn't go over all that. And we feel so insecure and ashamed But can I say that we take God's working in a person's heart completely out of the equation? You know what I've noticed? The people that I've had the opportunity to lead through the gospel, most of the time by John 3.16, they're usually broken. I don't necessarily have to go to Romans 3, Romans 6, Romans 5, Romans 10. I don't don't have to go to 1 John or or even John. I, I, I don't have to go anywhere else. You know where I go? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And at that very moment, I've seen grown men who have never cried in front of their families break down in tears. It wasn't anything that I said. It wasn't my Bible college education that led that man to Christ. You know what it was? It was God's word working on a man's heart and breaking it. It was God doing a work that... We think that we have the responsibility to do, but we don't have the ability to do it. You understand, we cannot offer anything in the means of salvation. It is just our obedience that God is allowing us to take part in someone's salvation. But God, in His marvelous work of salvation, does uh, so many things. He imputes and He transforms and He regenerates and He does all these things and it has nothing to do with me. We think so often, well, what if I get mixed up? I remember one time standing at the door, and it was like I went blank and couldn't remember a Bible verse. I was like, well, I promise the Bible says it somewhere. You ever been there? You see, it is my obligation to go out of obedience because God has done a miraculous event in my life, and I want others to see this miraculous event in theirs. You know, if we find a good deal at HEB or we find a good deal at a car dealership or a salesman that we particularly like, we send people their way, but when it comes to Christ, we're pretty tight-lipped, aren't we? What a shame it is. Now, my dad always would say something, and it quite offended me when I was younger. I'd be watching probably my favorite show, uh, Tom and Jerry, and he would always come in, and he would say these words every single time. Huh? watching some educational programming, I see. It's like, well, I could watch PBS, but they're just painting right now, so. 
I'd be watching that, and every time he'd come in there, educational programming I see, and it was almost like an insult to my intelligence. Like, Dad, there's a lot to be learned from Tom and Jerry. Like, run from people bigger than you. But I do believe that it has some educational value. My favorite episodes, however, were not the ones with just Tom and Jerry. It was when they threw another character in there by the name of Spike. Some of you may remember that. Tom, if you don't, aren't familiar with the plot, he's a cat. And Jerry, he's a mouse. And Tom's always constantly trying to get Jerry. It's very similar like Roadrunner and Coyote. It's cat and mouse game. Did y'all see what I did there? They were like, yeah, it just wasn't good. <laughs> but that's what it is. But every once in a while, they throw in this dog. And Spike was a big bulldog. I would think he was like an English bulldog. I'm not sure, but he was huge. He was built like he had been working out, like dogs have the ability to pump iron and get huge. And, and I watched a few episodes tonight before uh, Deacon's meeting. Brother Billy came in and saw me watching Looney Tunes, and I'm sure he's thinking, I bet it's going to be a good sermon tonight. <laughs> We're starting out with Looney Tunes. We're getting off on the right foot. But uh, uh, my favorite episodes were when Spike was involved, and this was the reason. is because when Tom was simply running from Jerry, that's all he was doing. He would always run. And it seemed like, uh, you know, Jerry would run into his hole, and, and Tom would hit his face on the wall, but it was pretty anticlimactic. When it got good and funny was when Tom started antagonizing, or Jerry started antagonizing Tom, and then ran him right into the bulldog. So he would go uh, mess with him, and what Jerry would do sometimes is he would take the dog's bone. And he would take the dog's bone and he would put it on uh, Jerry or Tom when he was just hanging in a hammock somewhere. And the dog would wake up, Spike would wake up, and he'd realize, where's my bone? And he would look over, and Tom's asleep with his bone. And so the pit, the, the pit bull or the, the English bulldog would go over there, Spike would go over there, and he would say, why, yada, y'all know what I'm talking about. And he would, he would usually hit him over the head. I watched several tonight. One, he hit him over the head with a hammer. One, he hit him over the head with a board. It's a pretty violent show, to be honest with you, but there was no blood, no guts. It was quite educational. But I want you to notice this. The only time that Jerry was ever courageous was when he had somebody backing him up. You know why you ought to have the courage to share the gospel? Because God's backing you up. We act like the gospel all depends on us. It didn't depend on us in our own salvation, much less the salvation of someone else. The reason we ought to obey, the reason we ought to do what God has asked us to do is because God says, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Then go spread the gospel. He says, I have the authority to commission, but I also have the authority to help you along your way. So often it's almost like we're at it alone in the martyr complex. Well, I just don't know. But God looks at us and says, I need you to get an eye. An eye that sees that whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're healthy, whether you're wealthy, whatever the case may be, if you don't know Christ, you need him. And God just wants people with a needy eye, whether they're religious or not religious, whether they're noble or whether they're peasants, 
Whatever it is, we ought to be able to see that people without Christ have one common denominator, and that's Christ. They need Him, and they need Him bad. God looks at us tonight and is asking us to get an eye for the needy.